0: Welcome to another episode of the Kernig Exchange by Medtronic. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Dr. Gene Rossi of NYU. Welcome
1: everybody to the Medtronic podcast, reviewing our STS meeting 2022. I have a a whole panel of uh, different people who've uh, gone through, attended the meeting, and we're here to hear their thoughts, what their high points were, the good points, the difficult points of of the meeting were. Uh, and I guess I'll start by uh, asking Tom to introduce yourself.
0: Uh, hi, guys. Welcome. I'm Tom Wynn. I'm, uh, I'm a cardiac surgeon here in San Francisco and uh, delighted to join this distinguished panel uh, to talk more about the STS. Looking Fantastic. forward to the discussion.
1: Jessica F.
2: Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Jessica Forsello. I'm a cardiac surgeon at the University of Montreal Hospital Center in Canada. Happy to be here.
1: Sunishi?
3: Hi, my name is Shinichi Fukahara. I'm one of the adult cardiac surgeons at the University of Michigan. Uh, it's a great honor to be here with uh, you. Thank you.
1: And last but not least, JL. Well,
4: hello, everyone. I am Jessica Luke, and I'm a fourth year cardiovascular surgery resident uh, in Vancouver, uh, University of British Columbia, uh, Canada. I'm uh, very uh, delighted to be uh, joining you all to talk about the highlights and what we learned from the STS 2022 meeting.
1: Fantastic. And I, I was thinking we were going to start this off by uh, putting Tom on the spot. And uh, I can only think about how difficult it was when everything was thrown basically at you that you had to go to a virtual meeting. Uh, Could you go a little bit uh, about when you figured, when that was dumped on you and uh, what the reaction time had to be to be successful?
0: Wow, so, you know, the SCS, we were so fortunate to have such a high level of really good quality abstracts. And just for some context, we start working on the program probably seven or eight months beforehand, before the abstracts even come rolling in. To figure out what categories we want, what themes we want, you know, et cetera. And then eventually the abstracts start flowing in and we start developing the program. And we felt pretty confident and really excited about a phenomenal, phenomenal program. But it was obviously, with Omicron surges happening, and we felt uh, a big responsibility that it would not be right to collect everybody in the same place and put people exposed unnecessarily and, and perhaps even, even stranded uh, in various places. Uh, So this happened at the last minute, pretty much, you know, a couple weeks before the STS, we had to re-meet and go through all the abstracts again uh, and recategorize everything and and put a program together. Um, That said, I think what we did was we put a program that really tried to highlight some of the best of the best of the STS. Uh, On top of that, we try to cover the whole spectrum of adult cardiothoracic surgery, not just cardiac, but thoracic and congenital as well. Uh, overall, I think we I think we did a pretty good job uh, uh, given uh, you know such a short uh, uh, time frame for us to kind of turn things around and, and of course we couldn't do it without all the the members of the program committee and all the SCS staff and and again you know a big appreciation for everyone who submitted an abstract. One thing I want to add is that in addition to a lot of the live presentations, we actually have a lot of presentations that are on demand. So even though they may not have been presented live, they are archived. Uh, for really the whole world to tap in uh, at their leisure uh, and get the benefit of the kind of scientific um, findings out there in our community.
1: Thanks. Jessica, how did, you, how did you approach the meeting? Did you pre-meet, go into it? Uh, did you go, lo- go to the live sessions and work through it that way? How did you do posters, which to me is one of the more exciting parts of the program? Did you approach it like a regular meeting or how did you handle it?
2: I approach it as a regular meeting. So basically I look at the schedule and I went to the session that uh, really uh, correspond to my my interest. I think it was really interesting. We had the chance to participate also asking questions. It was really interactive and uh, we had great presentation with topics that were uh, basically there was a lot of things that were really interesting for our practice, and I was really amazed to see the implication also and in the involvement of surgeons in also the
1: transcatheter field. Sanishi, you, uh, Michigan had a, a pretty significant showing at this meeting.
3: Yeah, usually, yeah, we 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 have had many abstract. I mean, traditionally, we. Typically, have maybe 10 to 20 abstracts accepted for oral, and this, and in addition to some posters. And then, you know, to me, I mean, this decision, you know, at the very last minute, it must have been very, very difficult for the, you know, STS and then, you know, the, uh, you know, associated people who are organizing the meeting. However, as Tom said, it was very impressive that, the, you know, And also, I think presenters are much better, you know, than the last year in terms of presenting on Zoom that I think everyone was very good. And I really enjoyed the meeting. It was really disappointing. I was really expecting in-person big meeting. However, I really enjoyed and I was very impressed with the meeting. Yeah.
1: Jay, Luke, what what was your first what was your take home message from it? What sessions grabbed you the most? What What was the most exciting? What interested you the most?
4: Yeah, thank you very much for that question, Dr. Grossi. I I really enjoyed the STS 22 meeting, and and um, really like in times like these, it's really making the best of what we got. And I I truly think that we did make the best of what we got with this STS meeting. There was lots of phenomenal work presented at this meeting, Um, but my my favorite session was actually the um, career progression session on personal insights along the journey um, from the perspective of Shaney. And um, the talk that really, uh, really uh, resonated with me and I think um, is is universally applicable to, uh, I think everyone Everyone, in terms of wherever, at whatever career stage they're at, um, at whatever times they're in, whether good times or bad times, um, and how to get, get through life and become successful. And that talk, uh, I think the take home message that I got from that talk was in, in times of trouble, um, you need to control your narrative, you need to listen. Um, wishes are not plans, So you need to have contingencies, you need to have a strategy, logistics. Um, Persuasion, Um, there's a difference between commanding versus alignment and the most important part is communication and velocity um, and yeah, use that quote, if you get too far ahead, you're easily mistaken for your enemy. So your team can only move as fast as you and need to respect the velocity of your team and move just a little bit faster to um, push beyond um, where, where you're currently at and then owning your future. So you are responsible for everything that happens and everything that doesn't. So, but the natural tendency to focus on the short term and uh, focus on the long term strategy. And then finally, I think even with um, with COVID and it unfortunately uh, transitioning STS uh, from an in person to a virtual meeting would be all threats or opportunities. So um, with with anything with any setback, um, it is an opportunity to. Uh, use it to uh, to uh, to uh, push the boundaries and and uh, for example, of STS 2022 truly meeting uh, the needs of a global uh, cardiac, uh, thoracic, and congenital surgical audience. In addition, uh, I would it would be uh, suffice to say that uh, uh, I really enjoyed the presidential address by Dr. Sean Grondin and. As well as uh, a talk by Dr. Bartley Griffith on genetically modified xenotransplantation, which is truly a worldwide breakthrough, and I feel so blessed to witness it in my lifetime.
0: Gene, can I add on that a little bit? You know, so I actually sure. really enjoyed uh, Sean's presidential address as well. You know, a lot of times we're talking about leadership and and all the other things that are kind of related to being a cardiothoracic surgeon, but here in my division, I always tell folks that, "Hey, guys and women." We're actually more than cardiac surgeons, we're human beings and we always have to not forget that there's a human side of us, a side that needs to be balanced, a side of us that needs to remember the totality of life, uh, the side of that needs to 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 kind of fit in. And 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 I thought his message was perfect in that. And his theme, you know, in kind of preparing for the meeting, he said he wanted this meeting to be kind of focused on wellness and focus on just the completeness of life. You know, as 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 well known as as many folks are, we know that you know, if we retire two, three years from now, you know, you're gonna be forgotten pretty quickly, but our legacy like is actually good, you know, the people that we encounter, you know, uh, on a personal level, uh, probably more often than, than, you know, some of the patients that we, we see. But anyway, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty powerful. I, enj- I enjoyed that as well. Jessica, what were your thoughts? What, what, what hit you the most?
2: The thing that hit me the most is that the implication of surgeons in the data right now. Uh, in fact, we are confronted to a transcatheter therapies now and we need to be competitive and show our contemporary surgical data. So when I saw like the registry, five year registries of the Paragon trial and the COMMENTS trial for uh, the bioprosthetic valve and also the, um, the the study that was done, I think it was an insight uh, uh, from what was described, the of the largest and most comprehensive analysis of isolated surgical AVR and bicuspid valve uh, from the Brigham Group uh, in Boston. I think it's really important because basically we are doing uh we are studying the patient that were ex- excluded from those major trials so especially patient with bicuspid valve or the patient with i uh, syntax score that we will uh, need to have answer for that because so few is known right now and we need really to um to uh suggest to our to um to, to guide our patient and to suggest probably and to orient them towards the best uh, approach. Uh, uh, I think it's Shinishi, uh, Shinishi that said that uh, we need to consent the patient for now, but also for what will happen in the future, especially with those uh, those studies and those uh Retrospective data. That's uh, Shinichi also published a lot about reoperation post uh, TAVR, and also there was another paper, I think, with the reoperative uh, mitral uh, surgery following failed tear. So I think those data are very important, especially that now our surgeons who are seeing patient, um, and we are in, we are uh, involved also in those programs. So uh, we need to guide those patients and to to provide. All the options for the patient and, and try to to decide with them what will be the best option for them.
1: Sanishi, so, but we what? Why don't you go a little bit in the data that you presented? Just recap it for our listeners.
3: Yeah, of, of course. Thank you so much for <coughs> talking about this topic. So we uh, presented our results of reoperations after TAVARS. These reoperations not only uh, you know, including the uh, redo SAVA procedure after TAVR, but also mitral, tricuspid, and the cabbage procedures. All cardiac surgery operations were included. And then uh, over the, I think since we started uh, performing TAVR in 2011, about 6% of the patients ended up having reoperations of any kind. But uh, none of these patients were informed that, that the reoperation was necessary at the time of uh, index TAVR procedure. Of course, in the early TAVR era, nobody was thinking about the reoperation. Patients were mostly high-risk patients. Unfortunately, many of the high-risk patients who had TAVR complications or failed TAVR device. Didn't undergo any reoperation or redo TAVR; they just died. However, now <clears throat> we are implanting in patients with the younger and the lower risk of patients. These reoperation scenarios will become inevitable in a subset of patients, and then so this is a we are talking about the coexistence of a less invasive TAVR procedure and the higher uh, risk in a post tabar re-operation, this information should be delivered to patients who are choosing to have a tabar procedure. And this is a time that uh, this should be included in the informed consent for these people receiving tabar procedure. That's a take on message from my talk. What were you gonna say, Jessica?
2: Um, the thing that was interesting also from those papers is that the mortality is even higher if those patients are reoperated and we do a concomitant procedure at the same time. But the fact is that those patients that second lesion or probably coronary artery disease or mitral regurgitation was in the majority or maybe half of the patient existent at the first operation and we didn't address it. So at the beginning, we can afford that with patients that were older and IRS patient, but now with the younger patient that we're gonna treat, uh, we cannot make uh, abstraction of this other lesion as well.
0: I, and I wanna, I, wanna hammer, I wanna hammer down that point a little bit. It's subtle, but I think it's so, so important because everyone, you know, I do Tavers. I, I think most of us on the on the panel actually do Tavers. I'm a big fan of it. But you know, we have these younger patients coming in, hey, I want to do a Taver, our risk of mortality is two two percent, one or two percent. But hey, you're gonna need a reoperation if you do, your risk of mortality is not gonna be two percent. It's gonna be higher than that, or maybe double that, as opposed to maybe just doing an operation at the very beginning and maybe either putting a mechanical valve or doing something to avoid any need to to intervene down the line. And I think Shinichi, you know, you talked about it, but I don't think we talk about that enough. Uh, And I think we really need to dive deep. And now we have some of the data to show that, right? We have the data to say, hey, okay, fine, do a TAVR, and you're gonna have a, 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 you know, operative mortality of one or 2%, but maybe 10, 15 years, it's gonna be much higher than one or 2%. Let's talk about that too. You still get to decide what you wanna do, but we need to talk about it. And I don't think we do a very good job about that.
1: Tom, it's so almost like there's a, Uh, I don't know if you remember, Vince Gaviani was saying, that's our future, just big, bad things. Nothing's going to be simple. We're just uh, to train somebody as a cardiac surgeon, you have to be prepared for this. And obviously, your preparation also comes with letting the patient know what the outcomes of different choices are and stuff like that. There's nothing simple about our future.
0: And I'll add, too, uh, that, you know, let's say if you have a TAVR, and Shinichi knows this because I talk about this a lot as well. If you have a TAVR and you need to do a reoperation, if you have a self-expanding valve, your risk of new, needing a root is exponentially higher. So, in a young patient who otherwise probably wouldn't need a root, if you're going to expand it, a balloon expandable valve, you know, there's a high chance that you might need a root replacement.
3: Yeah, let me comment about uh, this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the possibility of uh, uh, you know concurrent aortic repair by tower valve the trauma, actually, as we uh, you know have uh, performed more and more of these procedures, we haven't seen much of aortic repair related to tower valve explantation maneuver. However, the uh, mortality uh, results remain actually really high. And then because uh, the mortality was driven by the baseline sickness of patients, which is typically amplified by the you know, other cardiac lesions, such as uncorrected mitral lesion, uncorrected tricuspid lesion, and the secondary pulmonary hypertension, severe right heart failure. Regardless of what we do, these people don't do well. And we have to keep in mind that uh, you know. Uh, leaving some, some other cardiac lesions and then take it you know just to take care of only aortic valve in the future when the tava valve uh, fails, those will come back to the patient. So we have to keep in mind this fact.
2: Yeah, I was impressed by your result, uh, Shinishi, and you have an, a lot of experience in that. Uh, at the beginning, uh, like Tom was saying, and I think we're going to get more and more experience as surgeons, surgeon that's removing those valves uh, without damaging the surrounding and the and tear root and stuff like that. And we're going to know, like, depending on how long will those valves last, what will be the damage after for us surgeons. But for sure, after we remove um, a tear, um, I think that majority of the patient will require mitral valve replacement. Uh, once, probably at the beginning, they could have benefit from a mitral valve repair. And that we're gonna see it also on the long-term results.
1: No no, no doubt about that. We, we see it in our practice, uh, people coming back and us uh, going in from the side. And uh, a lot of the times the valves are just not salvageable. By the time you get two or three clips off, uh, there's not much uh, tissue left. Thank you for listening. Be sure to
0: subscribe at metronic.com/cardicexchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.